Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 128 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger alongside Frank Saravalli. Oh, baby. What a night of hockey last night, Frank. Uh, we're going to have three game sevens on Saturday. We could potentially have three on Sunday. It's going to be a great weekend. we got a great guest coming up, uh, Bill Armstrong, the general manager of the Arizona Coyotes. But, uh, hey, let's, let's get to the game. A four-pack of games last night, Frank. Boston, Tampa, and Edmonton all avoid elimination. Uh, meanwhile, the Minnesota Wild uh, elect to go with Talbot. They lose, and uh, pretty convincingly, rather. So I guess let's start with the first game. Uh, Boston-Carolina, it's been a homer series. It's six for six, home team winning. Yeah, it's been the definition of a homer series. And I think what's more shocking than that is how lopsided each game has been in each building. Uh, The home team has outscored uh, the away team 29 to 10 in these... uh, in these six games to start the series. So it's been wild and back and forth. And, you know, you look at Bruce Cassidy, another big decision to, to break up the perfection line. And it seems like it, it worked. Yeah. And you know what? Hey, give him credit. You're right. Because it's just knowing your team and when's the right time to do it and when's not. And I, I give him, I give him huge props, huge props. And they came out, they scored a goal early in the second period and then they, they never really looked back. And, and now they go to Carolina and, and one game and anything can happen. And, you know, Carolina obviously would be still very comfortable because uh, they haven't lost on home ice and they pretty much dominated the games on home ice, Frank. Um, you know, like they've we'll dominated see. the series at even strength. They really yes. have. It's, it's been Boston on the special teams. That's been the big difference. And I think the hurricanes are going to rue the missed opportunity that they had in the second period Four power play chances, hit the crossbar a couple times, just couldn't get one past Jeremy Swayman. And then when they finally did in the third, it was too little too late. Yeah. That's why I always counter. Some people suggest, ah, special teams don't matter in the postseason. I'll strongly disagree, man. They, they matter a lot. And, you know, ask the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, Toronto's up three to two in the third period. They battle back from a two nothing deficit again. I give the Leafs massive props for that. I thought game five was huge comeback win for them. And, you know, then they take a, Two consecutive high sticking penalties, 15 seconds apart, and uh, Kucherov buries it on the on the ensuing power play, and we go to overtime. And you know, uh, Tampa Bay, that's just that's a key timely goal. I don't think Kucherov's been great in that series, but that was a massive goal for him. He was awful in Game Six for large stretches, and gets that one game tying goal that ends up being really the difference that saves Tampa season. You know, you can talk about the point overtime goal, but they're not getting to that. If, if they don't capitalize on that five on three opportunity and, you know, there's going to be a lot of hyperbole. There's going to be a lot of history and storytelling from the Toronto Maple Leafs and their demons of playoffs past and ghosts of playoffs past. But when I look at the Leafs and where they're at, you know, yes. Did they miss another colossal opportunity to knock off the two-time defending champs with a lead in the third period on the road in game six? Yes, they did. They missed another opportunity to go up three to one in the series earlier. And these are trials and tribulations, but nothing about this series and the way that it's played out feels anything like 
the series that they've had in the past where they've just imploded on themselves. And that's not to say that that can't happen in game seven, because I think there's going to be so much nervous energy there that that may be exactly what's ha- what happens in game seven. But I think they've at least given themselves a chance with the way that they've played, with the way that they've had their heads on, with the way that they've come back and competed and really how complete they've played. You look at game six, there's not really a lot to nitpick at for the, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, you can, you can point to certain things. Uh, and there were some moments that really stood out. Austin Matthews falling in overtime. Um, you know, the, the undisciplined play, you know, especially while you already had a guy in the box uh, to go five on three, the first one wasn't even a penalty. Uh, you know, if you take a closer look at that, David Kampf, it's not a high stick to the face. Um, it's not even a high stick at all. He caught him in the Jersey or the shoulder pad, and it was a great sell job by Cal foot. None of that is said Jason to be an apologist at all for the Leafs. Um, they've put themselves in this spot yet again, not being able to hang on to that, that third period lead. And I did think if there's one thing to really go after the Leafs about, it was that they did seem a little bit timid, a little bit, uh, on their heels in the third for stretches of it before the five on three, but you know, it'd be easy to point to the Leafs and say, no chance they win in game seven, given their history. Oh, and eight in, a, in closeout games when they have the ability to move on in the Matthews and Marner era, but it doesn't feel like that. Um, Frank, I, I didn't, I watched the third in the overtime of the, of the Toronto game. Uh, was there missed calls because the, the, the penalties you look at, uh, you know, there was the embellishment that negated each other. And then, you know, they had the two penalties, obviously the Kerfoot's a penalty. And, you know, you mentioned that one, but was there a lot of missed calls uh, uh, that Tampa didn't get? Do you feel because I saw the post game interviews and I was like, oh, so I looked and I thought maybe Toronto was penalty killing all night and they weren't. So were they complaining or their silence suggesting that there was calls that they felt should have gone against Tampa Bay? I I didn't really see many. I think there was one. um, It looked like it was in overtime that Austin Matthews had his Jersey pulled for a, you know, an eight second sequence um, as he was, you know, sort of going around the ice in the offensive zone. That's a miss, but it also didn't inhibit him from making a play. He wasn't near the puck. Uh, So that would have been one, but you know, the real miss that the Leafs should be rightly upset about was the first high sticking call on David Kampf, as I mentioned, it just, it wasn't a high stick. You know, you even look in the rule book, the stick has to come above the shoulders that didn't happen. Um, and, and maybe some of it, I'm not calling uh cow foot a faker by any means, it, you know, perhaps it was just natural human reaction to have your shoulder pad jabbed like that and to jerk his head back. But in this case, either way, whether it was a sell job or not, it, it changed the game in terms of, you know, where the Leafs were at, they go down five on three and you could just feel it. You know, I I had buddies while watching the game, text me and say, here it comes, you know, and if you're a Leaf fan, you're probably sitting there feeling the same thing. This is the moment where they're going to cough it up. And they did yet again. Well, uh, they got a chance for redemption though on home ice and uh, both teams are two and one on home ice in that series. And do they go, uh, do they win? Yeah. Well, I picked Tampa, so I got to stick with my pick. So, so I had the Leafs in six and I, I, every part of my head wants to 
pick the the lightning, you know, just thinking that it's going to be so hard to knock off this team that now smells blood in the water, won't be phased at all going into game seven in Toronto. There's going to be so much nervous energy. I just, I just have a feeling that the Leafs are going to find some way to finally exercise these demons. Well, if they do, it'll be full marks, man, because obviously to throw in the two-time champs, uh, the one concern I'd have for if I was Toronto is Vasilevsky in overtime looked like Vasilevsky for maybe the first time in the series. He was excellent because uh, Toronto was the better team in overtime. They had a lot of good chances. And if, if that spurs Vasilevsky to find his game, because he's given up three goals in every game, Frank. And if all of a sudden he finds his game, that, that could be the difference maker. Because so far, I think Toronto has negated him. His save percentage is under 890, for goodness sake. So He was um, dialed in. He really yeah, was. He, in he was in overtime. It was, so we'll see if that carries over. Um, the, uh, the Wild... I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I watched uh, the highlights and obviously you can't watch all the games and they're crossing over a bit, but watching I didn't see any glaring errors by Talbot. Uh, what did you make of the goaltending decision? Do you think that's going to be uh, discussed a lot uh, in Minnesota? Do you think it mattered? Um, I, well, I don't know if it mattered ultimately because the wild didn't come to play. Um, their big guys, their big guns were kind of, you know, all nothing burgers in game six. And I will say the first goal that was scored on Talbot by Nick Letty was a soft one. And, and I oh, felt yeah. like that kind of yes. set the tone a little bit. Um, but I, I don't know that the result ultimately would have been different no matter who they started. And I think when you're looking at that game and that series, um, it that is a giant missed opportunity for the wild. You know, yeah, you had well, first off, you had the blues on the ropes up two to one in the series and to lose three straight that's shocking. You know, if you had told me before the series started that the blues would win in six, I'd say, yeah, okay. So like, of course it's a, it's a obvious predictable possibility, but the way this series unfolded with all the injuries on the blues blue yeah. line, the fact that they were with able to withstand all of that, they went back to Jordan Bennington. Uh, he was lights out in game six, only gave up one. I did not see any way that this series played out, you know, aside from maybe the final score. And by the way, you hear that? That's uh, the sound of my bracket being busted because I did pick the wild <laughs> to win the Stanley cup. Yeah, there you go, Frank. That's a tough one. And then the, uh, the late game, uh, the Edmonton orders who are uh, coming into that game had uh facing elimination in game six on the road in franchise history. They'd never lost. Now, granted, they were only two and zero, but uh, now they are three and zero. they will host a game seven, Frank at home for the first time since 1990, the first round against the Winnipeg jets. When the orders came back from a three, one deficit. Uh, so they'll try to come back from a three, two deficit. Connor McDavid uh, was electric, but uh, to me, you know, Mike Smith was good, but the orders defense without Darnell nurse, they did not give up very much to the Kings at all. I thought Evan Bouchard and Duncan Keith really bounced back after two subpar games for them. Brett Kulak played a ton. Chris Russell was a shot blocking machine coming out of the press box uh, for the Edmonton orders. And, you know, they, they, you know, they got gutsy efforts from a lot of guys up front, Leon Dreisaitl, um, you know, that skating on one leg. Well, yeah, the Mickey Anderson takedown. I'm actually surprised Frank, like when they look at things, that's a dangerous play all day long. When you, when you wrestle the guy down uh, in a scrum like that, um, you know, he'll probably get a, 
$5,000 fine is, is what they look at that. But I've never liked those plays, regardless of who the guy is. When you kind of take the guy and then you bend him backwards like that, it's just a cheap, dirty play. Um, I get why guys do it in the postseason. They're, you know, they're high strung. It's emotional. But um, those are plays that aren't, aren't necessary. I don't like them in the, in the game, regardless of, of who it is against. And, you know, dry saddle, I'm curious what will happen when he takes his skate off and uh, how he's going to feel in two days. That was really the big concern for me watching him gut it out was like, okay, you can get through this game. And I understand with the season on the line. And of course it will be again on Saturday, uh, Saturday, but you look at, you know, what's the reaction like from your body once the adrenaline wears off, it's, it's going to hurt a lot worse than it does now. And, you know, I don't know that he was necessarily a hundred percent going into the game. It felt like he was kind of off at varying points in the series and now you look at this and you say, well, that, that kind of changes the, you know, the, the outlook of the series a little bit. I mean, if he's potentially out for game seven and we're obviously jumping to conclusions, but um, you know, Connor McDavid took this team and, and put them on its, on his back to start the game. First shift, set the tone, um, you know, excellent again in the third period. How, how many times did you say to yourself throughout that third period? Wow. Like the defensive commitment from Connor McDavid in that third period, like you wish you could get that all the time. Yeah. And, uh, I'll be stunned if dry saddle doesn't play. I, I, even if he's on a bit of leg because of the power play, Frank, even if he's playing limited minutes, uh, they'll have him on the man advantage. Cause he's just so good there. And there's obviously not as much skating. And you know what? I thought it was fitting that Tyson Berry scored the game winner with five minutes left, but you know, Cody CC to assist the orders, you know, the Brett Kulak, their defense was great defensively and limiting, uh, LA. I thought that was their most sound game start to finish. And then they chipped in, you know, they were in on every goal. Uh, for the Edmonton orders. And, and that's huge uh, in the playoffs. You need kind of some unheralded guys and a two point night from Cody Cece and Barry with the, uh, the game winner and you know, Vander Kane scores uh, twice. Granite ones into an empty net, but uh, you know, now it's game seven and anything can happen in game seven. Uh, it'll be entertaining. You know, the Kings though, Hey, they're going to feel comfortable. They've won two games already in Edmonton. I, I don't think they're going to come in there overwhelmed at all. But all that said, as well as the Oilers played, they still didn't exactly make it easy on themselves. Like it was still some really sweaty moments there in the third period tied to two under 10 minutes to play their season on the line. You know, they did have an edge in this game that they gave up again. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, the, the power play goal from Dursey, that's, I don't think it's a bad play. And you know, they're the main, I'm not even sure there's a massive breakdown on the grunts from goal, but Frank, the Edmonton orders have lost 10 consecutive one goal games in the playoffs. 10 consecutive. And that, that to me, that was a one goal game up until, you know, the final seconds of Evander Kane, I think for the Edmonton orders. And, you know, uh, obviously you give up a few chances uh, on that power play right before the Kane goal. Um, Mike Smith made two or three unreal saves. It was huge for them, but I felt the Oilers, they didn't have their glaring giveaways, which Mm. has plagued them in their three losses. We talked about that a few times, right? They didn't beat themselves. Yes. That was really the thing that stood out. You know, even going back to game one, Mike Smith, they beat themselves with the turnover, Uh, you know, game, uh, game five, they were awful to start. You know, there was lots of different moments throughout the series where you say to yourself, okay, they just, they don't have it. And they had it really, you could tell that the tone was set. And I think that starts with McDavid right from puck drop. I didn't, I never got a sense that they were losing that game. 
Yeah. Now, uh, quickly, Frank, you look at Sidney Crosby's storyline, man. That is that his injury completely changed the, the game in, in game five. The island, the Rangers come back and, you know, score come from behind. They win that one. And now what are you hearing on Crosby? Any chance he's playing in game six? OK, so we're taping this at 1.30 a.m. Eastern time on Friday morning. And the games have just wrapped up from Thursday night. Every indication that I got Thursday, and again, subject to change Friday, I have no idea how, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how Sidney Crosby is going to wake up. I don't know how, you know, what the Pittsburgh Penguins have planned in terms of precautions or anything like that. Every indication that I have, if I can couch that properly enough, is that Sidney Crosby will be out for game six. Okay. And uh, hey, you know, probably not a huge shock given the way that he left the game. But that's that's the sense I've gotten. Here's the thing. Just when you count the Penguins out, I would never count them out. They, the, the, I don't know if there's an organization that plays better when their big guns go out. They, they've done it for years, whether it's Malkin, whether it's Crosby. Heck, they won a Stanley Cup without Chris Letang. Like that organization doesn't use losing their best players as an excuse. And so the Rangers, if they try to sleep on the Pens who are at home in game six without Crosby, Frank, I think that'd be a very dangerous thing to do because Pittsburgh, has a, they got a long list of games where they win without their best guys. It would, but I've never seen a game change like that with one player leaving the game the way that game five did on Wednesday. I I just, I'm sorry. I haven't. And, and the way Crosby dominated the series to this point. Yeah. I think it's series changing and I wouldn't be surprised at all to see the Rangers come back and win the series. Well, Frank, um, we could be seeing potentially six uh, games. Say, I think the Rangers uh, definitely without Crosby have a really good chance. You know, so the give Washington me your picks. Let's go through them. Uh, well, uh, I, I will take the Rangers in, in game six. Okay. So that brings us to game seven. Then what? Yeah, I'll take the Rangers. Well, I picked them at the start, so I got to okay. stick with it. So them. you're going to go Rangers in seven. Okay. Yeah. Caps, um, Panthers, game six. Well, see, here's where I'm torn because I picked the Panthers, but I really want game seven. So I'll say this. How about the Caps win game six and the Panthers win in seven? Okay. I could see that. And now, uh, that I leaves think the Flames Flames, stars. I, I think the Flames have figured out the stars. Um, the stars just can't score. Uh, so I'll take Calgary in six. I'm totally with you. I think that game four, the, they cracked the code. Yeah. Coming well, back Dal- even Calgary. in game five, Frank, like they're up one, nothing Dallas. And then the flames pot three and, and they got some guys who had done nothing in the series, man, Giapani scores. I think it just, you start to get some more confidence up and down your lineup. I just, you know, Calgary's done a great job. Dallas isn't a very good offensive team. Let's make that abundantly clear here, right? They're one of the worst offensive teams in the league in the regular season. So, you know what? Hey, maybe they st- shock me, but I can't see them winning the next two games. Maybe they, you know, maybe they squeak out at home, but they just, they can't find a way to score in Calgary. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that brings us to the game sevens on Saturday. So you got Leafs lightning. You said you're going lightning. Yeah. I'm going to go Leafs. And then you've got um, Edmonton and LA. Yeah. I picked the orders at the start. So I'll stick with that. Plus I think the Connor McDavid factor again is, is rather large. Okay. And the Bruins and Canes. Oh, didn't you pick the Bruins to start? Yeah, I, p- I picked the Bruins. So I got to stick in with seven, my picks. Right? You said Bruins yeah. in seven. I did say you? Bruins in seven. So 
You know what? Uh, hey, man, road teams got. Well, someone says the series doesn't begin until uh, the home team loses. So I guess uh, we'll see if that's true or not. <laughs> I had the Hurricanes in seven. So I'm going to stick yeah. with that as well. Yeah, well, I came right to it, man. That's that's been a close series for sure. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Why don't we get to our uh, our big guest now brought to you by DoorDash. If you've never used DoorDash, use the promo code RUNDOWNDD. That's going to get you 25% off your order and no delivery right now at DoorDash. Ding dong. Very special guest joining us today on the DFO Rundown. He was drafted by the Philadelphia Flyers in 1990, went on to play eight seasons in the American League and went directly from a player to an assistant coach, then moved up to a head coach for four seasons in the AHL and the ECHL. And then he switched to management, was hired by the St. Louis Blues in 2004 as a scout, became their director of amateur scouting in 2010, was then promoted to assistant GM in 2018. And in September of 2020, he was named the 10th general manager in Arizona Coyotes history. Bill Armstrong joins us. Bill, welcome to the pod. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, it's great to be on. Well, that's, uh, that's quite the resume you've had, Bill. Uh, you, you've touched a lot of bases uh, on your way up to GM, which which doesn't surprise me. And uh, and also, I will say, uh, the best dressed uh, guest we've had so far uh, on well, the pod. I appreciate that. That's, Wear, that's wearing the tie. Nice. I like it. I like it. So let's get in a little bit, Bill, to, to kind of your career path. You know, you'd won the Memorial Cup with Oshawa, and then you were drafted a, few, a month later or, or six weeks, whatever it was. And yeah. so you, you try the pro career as a player. Then you went to coaching what changed from coaching for you to say, now I want to go to management? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I think I'd learned enough in coaching. Coaching is going like going to law school. Um, it's important to have it in your background uh, to kind of uh, understand the grasp of, of just being around the players and what's it like to, to, to actually work with those guys all the time, be behind the bench where they're rubbing on you with their personalities and you know, when I got done coaching, I, I ran into a guy named Gordy Clark and he had helped me uh, uh, be a player in, in the Bruins organization. He had brought me in and I, I talked to him about scouting and uh, I figured out that where I lived in the Providence area, there was 31 Division One teams around the area. And I was like, OK, well, that's what I want to get into. I, I think I could be, do a really good job as a scout. And uh, and I kind of set my mind. So I set my resume out. And nobody got back to me. Like nobody, there was a lockout that year or strike, yeah. whatever you want to call it. And like, it was just crickets. And uh, I was like, Ooh, this is, this is going to be a little tougher than I thought. So uh, right at the end of the summer, I, I got a phone call uh, from uh, Larry Plow saying, Hey, listen, we, we want to interview you. Our area guys leaving and we've got a space for you. We'll fly into Toronto. And I met with uh, the head guy was Yarmo Kekalainen and uh, Yarmo didn't ask me any questions in the interview. He opened up the computer, he showed me RinkNet. He said, just kind of like you got the job. And years later, I said to him, I said, like, why didn't you ask me some questions? Like, you know, about, you know, what, what type of player? And all he goes, Frank Jay, who's a good friend of his, who was like amazing scout, uh, said, hey, listen, I'd hire Bill Armstrong in a second. So that was good enough for Yarmo. And we rolled and I ended up working for the Blues for 17 years. And that was kind of my path to get in there. Did you ever find out? Or in conversations, what what was Frank so high on? What why was he like, hey man, I'm hiring this guy right away? What what was your skill sets that uh, endeared you to him? Well, Frank was the GM of the Oshawa Generals, and uh, we went on to win a championship that year. So he he knew how hard I was uh, as a worker, and 
and he, he kind of knew me as a, as a person inside and out. And, uh, and as a teammate, you know, he'd kind of see me work with my teammates. So I think he had a good idea who I was. And uh, I had I had the right background, too. I had coached and uh, played and uh, uh, he liked that. So I think he had a good understanding of who I was uh, and kind of vouched for me. And that was my my career path to kind of start out with the Blues and, and uh, get along to work with uh, Larry Plo and Yarmo Kekalainen and uh, later on Doug Armstrong. So it was a, it was a good place to be and it worked out. So, Bill, you've had some time to get your feet wet. You spent a long time as Doug Armstrong is one of his right-hand men. What's been the biggest eye-opener for you uh, just being in the chair since you've been in Arizona? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's like drinking out of a fire hose when you first get the job. It's just, it's, it's completely like, you know, from the time you, you sign the contract to go, you know, you walk out that door, it's, it's just, it's the draft, it's the free agents, it's the signings, the coaching. It's, you know, so, um, I, I love the fact that, you know, when I, when I came in here, I, I had the ability with our ownership to kind of restructure the team, um, and, and kind of put in place, uh, not only uh, off the ice of the people that I want wanted to run the draft and the, and the pro staff, but also on the ice. Um, so there was a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of work. Obviously our, our organization is in the rebuild, retool, whatever you want to call it, uh, mode. So it's, it's, uh, it's not glamorous when you're in this, uh, you know, kind of rebuild. There's, it, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you experience a lot of losses at times. So it's, it's not uh, great for the franchise, but in the same sense, you get to change how the franchise looks and, and the players you add, uh, you know, through the draft and through free agency or the guys you find over in Europe can, can make huge difference. So I'm excited about the fact that, you know, we've kind of rebuilt underneath from the ground up and, and here we go. So you mentioned the rebuild and, and clearly the process is a big part of, you know, that putting all of that in place. Curious from a scouting perspective, you know, this is such a big draft for you guys this year coming up in a few months. Um, you know, when you look at the process and how that this has unfolded, it also feels like it's happened at the same time that scouting in the NHL has really changed a little bit. It, there's been less of an emphasis from the teams that I've talked to, certainly on in-person viewings and way more video work being done. Yeah. Can you shed some light on, you know, what, what it's been like for you guys in your organization in terms of, you know, really making sure you get all the viewings that you need both in person and in video? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, when because I think the pandemic has led uh, the scouts to want to know the players better because they've taken what they've learned in the pandemic of studying video, uh, but also mixing it with some live views and mixing it with some analytics. You you have a better understanding of the player. Um, so I think scouting has changed simply because of the pandemic. Um, they want to know the player better, um, and that's what analytics and that's what video does. Um, you'll never know the player really till you see the body language, you know, when they get to the bench after the coach pulls them and all that stuff that you can't really see on video. There's stuff off video, um, like uh, the pace that the player uh, kind of plays at. You can't really, there's certain things that you can't see on video. So live viewings um, are really, really important. But at the same time, to know the player better and inside and out to do a great job as a scout, those tools of analytics and the tools of video are, are just like, they're they're great for scouts. The harder you work, the, the luckier you get in scouting. And that's that's two tools you can use to be a better scout. Do you, do you think we'll ever get to the point, Bill, where 
there's only limited live in-person viewings that are needed in the sense that, you know, you, you mentioned some of the things, the boxes that you need to check body language. If you're looking at a defenseman, you want to know, and you really can't see it on video. How do they manage their gaps? Things like that. But really that the purpose of scouts or scouting will be almost like investigative reporters in a sense, not that you're digging for dirt, but your key as a scout will be to get to know the player and what makes them tick really before you even call their name in the draft. Yeah. I have this theory when it comes from my dad, he owned all these companies and they eventually all went extinct. And uh, my thought process was this change before you have to. And in scouting in the world of hockey, it's always changing. One day there was, you know, you had five fighters on your team. The next day you woke up, there wasn't, there's no heavyweights left in the league. It's always changing. And you have to stay up on the trends as far as scouting. And I think, you know, with all the SMT data and all the other data coming in, and even if you take gambling, you know, they're studying numbers and those numbers are going to make us more efficient about predicting goals and, and all the things in hockey. So it's it, numbers are important. Analytics are really important. I'm not so sure that it will completely take away from scouting because there is some some greatness about seeing that player live, seeing how he interacts on the bench with his teammates and, you know, how how he does, you know, if it's a goaltender gets scored on and, you know, all of a sudden you see his body language. There's some greatness about seeing that person live. Um, but I think w- what you're talking about with the analytics and video is that the actual draft itself and the lists that are produced of teams are going to become more accurate because of the video and because of the knowledge from analytics. It, they're they're going to be way more accurate. Bill, um, when you use analytics, some, some people like to call it information, right? Uh, the no. more information you get. How have you discerned what is the right information and what can be misleading or maybe not tell you what the, you think the numbers are saying. Well, it's good. Yeah, that is that's another good question because analytics can be very misleading, you know, and there's a lot of things you don't need to measure. You don't need to measure how quick he gets to the bench. Like, you know, like there's certain things you just don't need to, you know, to measure. Uh, but there are some things that are really, really important. But what you have to be under, understand behind the scenes is like, well, okay, you know, we are comparing, I remember the draft with Dubois and Laney. Uh, they had analytics, it was kind of like the first time we had seen them in, in the amateur side, and they had 11 viewings of each player. Well, Dubois was playing against 15 and 16 year olds. Laney's games were at the world championships. There's a massive difference of, of that. So you, when they presented him, the analytics didn't look right until you really got in and deep and you asked a lot of questions. So I think as we move forward and we understand, you know, the accuracy of the analytics and the evenness of the analytics and what you're measuring, um, they can really, really help teams out and, and they can really be catered to what the team wants in their identity. You have a background, of course, as an amateur scout and then director of amateur scouting. Then, of course, as assistant GM, you, you, you evolve into pro scouting. C- yeah. Can you talk the, the difference that you've known? Like, is amateur scouting much more of a projection a little bit, Bill? Whereas when you're looking at pro scout, it's a little bit more of a finished product to say, hey, we think this guy can fit in our puzzle right now. Yeah. Amateur is very humbling. You'll walk in a building like that kid will never play. And, <laughs> you know, six years later, you're like, mm, like, I got to go back and think about that one like how did that how did that person play in the national hockey league it's a humbling job because of the change in 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 that you see from the kids and you first see them at 15 to the time 
you know, they're 20 years old. The, the amount of change is, you know, some kids just get it. You know, some kids experience something, you know, that that causes them adversity, whether it's their girlfriend or their parents getting divorced or a coach is not playing them or some some point in time. And they grow because of that. Um, and other kids don't grow as much. So sometimes when you see the pros, they kind of are who they are to when they get to a certain point. Um, and, and they're and they're a little bit easier to predict. Um, but amateurs change. And there's a lot of things behind the scenes you can't see uh, that influence uh, the path of an amateur player. And I want to quickly ask you about that aspect of the, the human side yeah. of scouting, right? Like you use the word adversity. And I find, you know, a lot of the top end picks, you know, they're the best player on their team. You know, they've never not been on the power play or anything like, is there a way to find out which guys, you know, maybe have the thicker skin who are going to be able to deal with adversity at the pro yeah. level when they never really had it at their junior or college days? It's an amazing education for me. I like 20 some years I've sat in those rooms and, and interviewed players and the, and the ones that have had some type of adversity, whether it's a speech impediment, something's happened to their mom or dad, how strong that has made them. Um, all the top 10 kids in the draft, they, they look the same. They come into the room, they're like King Kong, they scored 50 goals. They got, you know, confidence comes from a source. It's yes. you know, how good they are in junior, you know, and they come walking through and they're flashy suits and they're like, you know, and then, some guys, it doesn't, it doesn't translate and it really affects them and stroke because they're not used to that adversity. And sometimes it breaks them. Uh, other guys, they'll come back and you see the Jack Campbells of the world where all of a sudden they experience some adversity, you know, in pro and he battled through it and somehow find a way back to the NHL. Some guys, it breaks where they never do. Um, but adversity is, and, and it was great for me as a parent, just to be in those rooms. I tell my kids about some of the stories and what kids went through to be a player, you know, and, uh, and I always found like the, the, the parents that were the toughest on the kids and, and held them to the highest standards, their kids actually, you know, kind of accepted that, you know, and they were like, you know, mom and dad are driving eight hours. I better work hard. And, uh, you know, that, that influenced me. My, my son has gone on to have a pretty good college career at BU and BU. And I would tell him the stories about the players all the time. And I think that actually helped him to learn how to work harder. Bill, you mentioned adversity and, and when you're going through the rebuild, some of the losses that pile up can be tough for the guys that are, you know, in the current roster to deal with. Um, we heard some candor from Jacob Chikrin to close out the season. Um, and he expressed, you know, some of his thoughts about, you know, the lack of winning and how that's impacted him as, you know, a proud competitor, like so many guys on your team are, what do you make of those comments? And, and obviously it's a tough spot to be in having his name been out there, you know, in the trade rumor mill, the last number of months to then stick through the deadline and now have this sort of uncertain future facing him again this summer. Yeah, I think those comments are natural. It, you know, if you're getting off the plane every night and, you know, you're not winning, it's tough. I don't care who you are. Um, we were fortunate that we had great leaders in our locker room uh, uh, with guys like Jacob Chikrin, but also the lads of the world, the Beagles of the world, the Strawmans of the world and the Roussels. And they make a huge difference. And I, I tried to study the rebuilds in basketball and some other uh, sports going through it. And one of the things that I, we found out was you got to have good character because it can really go sideways um, when you're going through the rebuild. Um, and you you have to remember the one thing you have to worry about when you go through the rebuild is, con is con like really being focused as an organization on the process. And we talk about this a lot of times. It's like, you know, from the analytics 
to our coaching staff, to the way we run practice, to the way we eat. We have to worry about perfecting the process. And that's what we get the players to buy into the whole time is how to practice better, how to eat better, how to work out better. And we tell them like, listen, five years from now, we plan on you know being a championship team and a championship organization. We've got to work from now till then to perfect it. And that's one of the things we concentrate with the players in adding good leaders like that. It, there's, it's a smoother ride because there's something to get from the season. And, and I understand the, the comments sometimes that come out of the players, but at the same time, you got to battle through it. You got to battle through it and you got to worry about perfecting the process and being a better teammate and learning how to play harder. And when you do that, good things happen at the end. So when you go through that process, there's going to be casualties of it, right? I mean, yeah. there just are. It's a fact of life. Not everyone wants to be in that spot. And I don't think, you know, even if Jacob Chickren were to raise his hand and say, I don't want to be part of it, it's not an indictment on him. He's got only so many years to compete in his career to chase something. How do you manage that um, as a manager? Is it what's the key to it? Is it open communication and dialogue? What do you do? Yeah, I think that's correct. It's very, I, I try to be very transparent with the player. I try to be very honest with the player and tell them, Hey, listen, this is where we're at as an organization. I understand your concerns, but it's also a business, you know, at the same time, you know, we can't accommodate everybody's wishes on the team. Everybody wants to play first line. Everybody wants power play. That doesn't always happen. And just because you're not happy with your situation doesn't mean that we can fix that um, now, or maybe three years from now, who knows, uh, we're, we're going to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're going to worry about the process and we're going to expect you to dig into it and we understand your wishes and, and hopefully at some point maybe we can accommodate you if it benefits the club um, but that's the, the 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 biggest thing that we we kind of make sure that it's going to benefit our organization so Bill, you, you, I want to talk about your experience in St. Louis, because really leading up to the Stanley Cup final from 2012 to 19, you guys had the second most points in the NHL. Like you were a yeah. really top team, but no, you weren't necessarily. And even in 2019, up until Christmas, no, no one thought you guys were going to be the Stanley Cup champion that year. I think it's fair. <laughs> yeah. but We didn't either because we were watching Hughes at the uh, World Juniors. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, when you look at, at that eight year run and, you know, you were director yeah. of amateur scout and then you moved up into the assistant GM. Emerald, uh, you know, building your way up and yeah. just kind of the process of that, that it's, it wasn't just, Hey, now we're good. You know, we're into the conference final. Now we're going to be in the conference final every year. Like it, it doesn't work that way in the national hockey. There's, there's lots of, of the trials and tribulations and value. What did you learn during that time that you hope to take to Arizona? Because it looks like you have a big picture plan that, yeah. that there's no quick fix for. Yeah. There's, there's no quick fix here. We're the same as St. Louis. It helps me that I was, I went through that with St. Louis. Um, the biggest thing that I, 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 I tell all our guys is just keep drafting and acquire good players, stack one good player on the next good player on the next player, and be patient about that process. And we've been lucky. Like we've, we've been able to acquire the guys like Gunther last year in the draft. He's going to be a really good player. He's having great playoffs. You know, we got him at nine and then all of a sudden we got JJ Moser. He played for us. You know, he was one of our top four defensemen and we got him at 60, I think at the draft, we got Veg Malco. We picked him up as a free agent. So we've added these little pieces very quickly to our organization. And that's my big message to our organization. Keep adding good player on good player and good player. I think, I believe we've got the, the most picks in the next three or four years in yeah. any other organization. And we're still going to try and add more and we're going to try and do it through drafting. If you look at the, you look at the 10 uh, team, last 10 teams that have won, it's all the draft. It's, it's the same common theme. Guy picked at one, 
guy picked that two, or it's, you know, it's, you know, it's one or it's five, but it's the same. You've got to find your impact players at the top of the draft at some point. That's going to help drive the organization um, through and, uh, and you've got to have great scouting. Um, I think the other lesson I learned from the blues is we had two major issues with, uh, with the blues that had huge setbacks uh, for us every single year they occurred. We played LA or played Chicago and they actually went on to win the Stanley cup and they stopped us from getting through that. And it made us a better organization in the sense that we had to go back and draft better players and, and, and just really fine tune it and become a better organization, a grittier, tougher organization that could compete in those big moments. And, and I think when we had faced those teams and the losses we had in the playoffs, they were great series. Might have been some of the best series that those teams had played. And uh, it's just a battle. And we, I think we did a good job at, at, at kind of drafting and, and acquiring better players for those battles. It made us better in the end. Bill, when you look at last summer and how it played out and how you aggressively leveraged your cap space, Yep. Not only to acquire more draft picks and assets, but also to fill out your roster. Uh, and you mentioned the, the leaders that came in as a result of that. It's sort of a, a nice bonus or byproduct. Um, and there were some really big hits too. Like I have to give you props, Shane Gossespierre, 50 point defenseman. You got the Flyers to give you a second round and a seventh round pick in order to just pick up the contract. Do you envision yourself being in a position to do the same or similar type thing this summer where you're using that cap space to your advantage? Yeah. I mean, teams get to a point where they're trying to win a championship um, and, and they've got a clear cap space. And uh, last year, I think they were able to do that a little bit with Seattle too. Um, but this year, um, you know, there might be us and maybe another other team, a team that does it. Um, it's an advantage for us because we have so much cap space to do that. Um, and it helps us, you know, if we're patient with the process to gain more draft picks through it, um, we're going to, we're going to go through the same summer as we did last summer and approach it the same way, uh, try to take on some deals and acquire some picks because of it. And I think it benefit teams that are going, that they need to clear the cap space with 6 million, 7 million, you know, uh, and, and we can do that for them. So I think it works in both ways. It gives the team a little bit of freedom and it gives us some draft picks. So we're going to try and do it again this summer. There's no greater asset in the NHL today than cap space. Um, when you go through that process, what's it like? Are you calling teams or do you just basically put a sign out there that, that on your lawn <laughs> that says, Hey, uh, you know, I'm open for business. How does it work? Are you actively approaching teams with ideas that may have some salary cap pinches or do you let them come to you? A little bit of both, but, but sometimes I see some stuff and I'm like, Hey, we, we could do this for you. I think it like, I think when you do deals with other teams, you always have to put yourself in their, their eyes. Like, does it work for them? Like it's got to work for both clubs, you know? Um, you know, so it, it depends what, you know, what model, like, where are they at in there? Are they going for it this, this year? So I think you just try and reach out to GM and say, listen, I, I think we have something here that would work for us because you guys have the picks and we can take the cap space and that's going to allow you to bring a nice player through the door you know, a free agency. So uh, you just got to explore that. I think sometimes, you know, everybody knows the cap and what everybody has. So you just try to reach out with some ideas and, uh, and it's got to work for both clubs and uh, hopefully there's something we can get done along the lines of what we did last summer. Bill, uh, during the season, um, you know, you talked about wanting to build a good culture in your organization. Um, Phil Kessel was, you know, chasing the uh, consecutive games played, 
the organization lets him take a shift and then leave a game so he can go home. Obviously, the birth of his first child, which is a, which yeah. a pretty monumental thing. You know, some people might not, you know, old school 20 years ago. I don't know if that would ever be even considered, <laughs> right? Like yeah. things change. Gary Unger lost his um, consecutive streak when his coach didn't play him a shift in the game, even though he was dressed, yeah. right? Like just things are different now. How important is the human element for you? And 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 even though maybe we're not winning right as much as we have, that, that I want people to feel like I respect them as human. Well, how important is that for you? It is interesting. Um, It's something, you know, I studied a a lot, you know, and and tried to really have a good understanding of of the job I would walk into one day. And it's one thing that I didn't spend, uh, you know, enough time probably is understanding what a thousand games means to a player um, and some of the other streaks. And inside your locker room, your players are very protective of the other players and you have to respect that. And you have to try and, you know, we actually had the ability to put Andrew Ladd in there after he had missed a couple of years and he got to a thousand games and the same thing with Louis Erickson. And we got, we're able to continue Phil Kessel street. Um, so if you want your players to play hard every single night and bond as a group, um, there's certain things that you can't cross them with them. And, and, and those were a couple of things for us that were really important to the players. And, and they're also important for us as an organization and to see if we can make them happen. And uh, we're able to do that during this, uh, this season. And uh, I believe, you know, that's probably why you see our team fought to the end, you know, we three games, I think we were down three, nothing, four, nothing. And we, we were able to come back and have some wins and, and we played competitive hockey all year long. So yeah, I think well, yeah. You, yeah. you guys were the main reason to quote Daryl Sutter that uh, Nashville had a, a waste of eight days because uh, you came <laughs> back from a four, nothing deficit in the, in the final yeah. game uh, of the season. Uh, speaking of this upcoming draft, you have seven picks in, yep. in the first two rounds. Do you balance off when you look at those picks say, well, we don't want all of those guys, you know, coming and turning pro at the same time. Do, you know, JJ Moser, you just mentioned him. You draft him a second round. He's an older player, right? He came in right away where a lot of these other kids, some are 17 or 18. Does that become part of the process when you have so many picks to ensure that there's not a glut of prospects all at one time? Yeah. I mean, you, you do have to balance it with contracts and there is, there is some juggling on that end. I'm also in the development, you know, your development staff goes from handling, you know, 11 players to 21 players. So you have to employ more development guys and making sure the process behind the scenes, you know, um, is, is really, really effective for, for handling that many players that are coming through your organization. Um, there's a whole strategy behind it that we've, we've tried to study as much as we can and, and what's going to happen when all these guys come through the door. Um, so we've tried to really work at that behind the scenes and have an understanding that we're going to probably drop more players in the next three years than, than any other NHL team. And what are we going to do with those players? Um, and how do we, how do we evaluate them the best and know the ones we want and the ones that we don't want? And there's a, there's a process behind the scenes that, you know, you've, you've got to employ extra people because the amount of players that you, that we, that we'll be drafting in the next three years. So do you, do you plan on putting more resources then into your amateur scouting simply because of that? Uh, we we kind of, that was my first thing I did is started hiring amateur scouts. I mean, if you think about our staff, we have a couple guys like that cross over from pro to amateur, but we've had four guys on our staff that have picked at one, you know, Larry Plow, Daryl Plandeski, Ryan Janikowski and Alan Heppel. So we've got a really experienced amateur staff and that, and, and for me being in the field, I knew the guys that I wanted right away and we went after them. And uh, that's a, um, that's the one thing I, I talk about all the time as I walked across the parking lot after I did the press conference for the job. I said, like, what makes me any different than the other GMs that were here? And, and you know, my thought process was just 
to make sure that we have the best amateur scouting available and go out there and get the right people. And that was the one thing that I, that we, we try to do from the moment I got the job. So what is your strategy then? Because you sat as a director of amateur scouting and the draft is kind of like your Stanley cup, right? You put in all these hours. Do you, are, do you let your head of amateur scouting make the final decision bill or are you, how is that going to work on draft day? Because I'm sure, you know, there's arguments. I really like this guy. And I really like yeah, this guy. Who, yeah. How does that final decision going to happen? And where will you, where will you stand on that? It's, it's a, it's another good question. Doug Armstrong, I thought was amazing with me when I, when we went through the process, he guided you like, Hey, listen, we're not taking a five foot six guy, <laughs> you know, you know, or, or we're not taking this guy. Cause we got so many of these guys, like he was really good in guiding, but he never really laid the hammer down. It just had to make sense. Um, okay. And that's, and that's what my thought process is with my guys is to guide them a little bit, you know, give them some ideas of what we need, you know, in, in, in our thought process around drafting certain players, but really it's their call. Uh, they're on the road the entire time. They have huge impact on the decision that, that that comes about when you're drafting high. Bill, how does moving to Arizona State impact your team and how this process unfolds over the next few years? And I realize it might sound like a dumb question, but just talking to some players, there's been some concerns and frustration yeah. about you know, what that, I don't want to say atmosphere will be like, but what that will look and feel like for a team that's going to need to park there for a few years. Yeah, it's it's an it's interesting. I've, we've we've actually had a tour of it, and it's um, it's going to be in very intimate inside. That I think it's almost like I think people just come because it's 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 you know like from, yeah, it's like it's something different that the NHL has never really seen is is that intimate. Um, and we're going to try and use it, you know, to make it loud and, you know, and, and our style of hockey that we play, I think coach Turney has done a great job with playing a physical brand of, of hockey and that small barn, we'll call it and, and get the fans excited. I mean, he's, we play a fast brand and it's a hard physical style that he plays. So it's going to be exciting. And that's the, you know, an intimate, you know, arena, um, you know, obviously we haven't seen him played there. So, I mean, that will kind of, uh, develop as we go, but, um, the players have, you know, expressed some concern in some areas we've tried to, you know, say, Hey, listen, we're going to build an NHL locker room there. We've added on to our facility and our practice facility. So there's some things we've done there. That's not the perfect setting, uh, but it's an interesting one at that. But it also requires some buy-in. Like we were talking about that just a little bit ago about, you know, you want guys that want to be there, but at the same yep. time, you might not be able to accommodate the guys that don't. How do you balance it all out? Yeah. You know, we're in a different environment down here. So, you know, like first thing when I took the job is like, you know, people would call me. I'm like, we're going to go through the rebuild. It's out there, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, these, your phone's ringing. Hey, my guy wants to come to Arizona, Arizona. You're like, you know, like, it just doesn't stop. Arizona is, is just the lifestyle itself is probably the most beautiful place you'll ever be in the middle of winter. And for some players that don't like constant attention, it's an advantage. Cause when you go out to eat at Mastro's, there's 22 other sports athletes that are eating there from some country somewhere and nobody really cares. So you have a, a complete freedom of being down in here in Arizona where you could take your family out to eat and nobody bothers you where maybe you don't get that in some high markets and it's not for everyone. Yes. We were not Madison square garden. It's not the big show, but not everybody wants the big show. So the, you know, for us down here, you know, you can golf in the middle of winter on your day off here, you can go hike, you can go walk your dog every day. Like there's just different things that you can do. It's an easy way to live. And, and, and uh, last I checked, your wife has a huge impact on what you do. 
Anyways, in my house, it does. I mean, if for he's sure. not happy, nobody's happy. And every wife wants to live in Arizona. So let's get that straight. Take a poll. It's, it's unanimous. Fair. <laughs> definitely fair. Yeah. And, um, and we have good taxes. And the last thing we, we throw free vitamins, uh, free vitamin D for the, for the, for the uh, families all the time. We get sun every day. So it's all good. <laughs> Uh, Bill, you have uh, Phil Kessel, Louis Erickson, uh, Jay Beagle, Antoine Roussel, Anton Strawman, all UFA pending veterans. Um, when you're in this this part of, you know, wanting to build a team and wanting to to have a successful one, you know, I've seen a lot of rebuilds and sometimes they just get rid of all their veteran guys. Oh, we're going to go with youth. Well, youth just yeah. gets their teeth kicked in all the time. How do you balance on trying to build a competitive team with young guys yeah. while still maintaining, you know, some professionals who can help guide them. Oh, it's, it's, and you, and you talk to our coaching staff and that's one of their biggest concerns as they've gone through this process. And last year we were extremely lucky with who we had in the room. And, you know, what I've asked them is for a little bit of patience, let's see who's available and let's see what, what deals are available and who we're bringing through the door. And as we move forward, we might have to bring back, um, you know, some guys that, that have been, you know, character players for us in, in last year. So we'll have to explore that as we go. Um, but it is definitely really important to have that leadership inside that room. There's, you know, it's a grind when you're going through the rebuild um, and you've got to make sure that you've got people that are going to, uh, you know, give you good leadership throughout the whole year. Well, Bill, uh, we always, uh, we appreciate your time. We like to wrap things up with uh, rapid fire. Uh, the only rule is you have to answer the question. Okay. Uh, it's just, I'm nervous now. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've been nervous. Well, we'll, we'll Frank start doesn't with look nervous though. No, no, no. Frank enjoys it. Uh, we'll, we'll start with some easy ones for you, right. Bill. After, uh, you know, maybe after you're named the GM or the Stanley cup, uh, uh, you won. What is Bill Armstrong's uh, beverage of choice, either alcoholic or non-alcoholic or both coffee. Starbucks coffee. Love it. Really? Two sugars? All night, all day. And I can go to bed. I can drink a full cup and go to bed. It just doesn't affect me. I love it. And uh, what's in yours? Is it, are you a double, double guy? Oh no, 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 no. My dad was like a triple double or whatever. Like that's just a weight gainer. I'm just black, just black. Okay. Uh, You told us prior to the interview that you've always, you know, your shirt and tie, that's just what you're comfortable in. Um, Who was your, your best dressed teammate? in your career other than yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, well, Louis Erickson is the best dressed human being ever. He looks like a fashion model when he gets off the plane. The worst was I just quick, Tony Tuzzolino was the worst dresser in the history of the game. And he played in the American league and I made him in charge of the fashion, you know, on our team. And it was the biggest mistake I've ever made. They walked on the bus. It was just a disgrace. It looked like Halloween. So did you give him guidance? Did he improve? I fired him as the fashion police on our team. <laughs> what I did, it was terrible. Will you allow your players to just go with uh, sweatpants on flights? Oh, we've got the fashion days down there, and our players love it. They love the fashion day. They think it's the greatest thing, and I'm just okay on it because, as a GM, if you're in a place on the road and you get your butt kicked, and your players are getting on the bus and they're looking like you know. Uh, like, uh, you know, really fashionable at times, maybe like they, they just came out of a skateboard park. Um, it's hard to wrap your eyes around it. Um, I'm trying to be one of those new, new wave GMs. I'm growing to it. They like it. So I like it for them. Um, it's not always easy on the eyes, but I think the new, the new, the new player in the NHL is it's, it's coming. It's coming our way. If, uh, if Bill Armstrong could wear one suit every day, what would it be and why? Ooh, blue suit. 
white shirt and blue uh, or red tie. Um, that's kind of my, and probably by Hugo Boss is probably my, uh, the stretch ones are, are pretty darn good. Bill Arms, you are a very tough guy as you played. Yeah. Are you, do you get aggressive as a GM or are you patient? No, I, I think I went through my learning process. I was a very hard coach to play for. Um, and I had a number of players come back to me and, you know, they were my guide. And and I used to run these hockey camps and, and all summer we had a thousand kids. And it was like, it was a massive thing. I had all kids that were 15, 16, 17 employed. And they actually taught me how to manage people and, and treat people um, because they work for $7 an hour. And if you were hard on them, they're like, I'm not coming to work, you know? So I, I kind of learned how to manage people after I, I was done coaching and, and just managing those high school kids taught me everything about how to get them motivated and how to get them to be their best um, with no money um, at hand. And, and I think that's why I, I like to treat people a little gentler, a little kinder now, but that's through learning. That's a learning process. I was extremely hard as a coach. You've been uh, in, in the management side and scouting since 2004. Uh, you've been a GM now coming up on uh, be two years in September. What was the thing that surprised you most about being an NHL GM? <sighs> it's on. It, it's on. Like you, your wife says, it's a beautiful day. Let's go for a walk. And you're like, absolutely. Take the dog for a walk. All of a sudden you get a call from an agent. My guy wants to be traded. You can be miserable like in two seconds. So my wife has gone through this process where she has, you know, uh, the, when I scouted, she called it the never home league. And then when I first got the job, you know, I put on a few pounds because there's so much food around. She called the never hungry league. And now that I've been a GM for two years, she calls it the never happy league. There's a lot of different forms of the NHL that's taken place. When you're a GM, it's on, you know, it's just, it's just from the moment you get up, you know, you know, we, and we we're on a time change. So at five 30 in the morning, guys like Frank are texting me, Hey, what's going on with this? You know? And it's like, Whoa, you're like five o'clock in the morning. You know, it's just, it's on from the whole time through. So you, you've got to learn to manage your emotions. It's the biggest thing as a GM. There's a lot of things coming at you, wins and losses and players being unhappy, you know, and all the things that are in the media now. So you've got to really learn to manage your emotions. It's, it's probably the, the thing that I've learned how to do the most. Best piece of advice you got when you were an NHL scout and who gave it to you? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um <sighs> Best piece of advice is, 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 is just go back. The best piece of advice is this 50% of scouting is showing up. You got to go, you got to get out the door and get to the rink. That's, that's the best piece of advice you'll learn. You can only learn it at the rink. You got to get out there and you got to get your, your feet wet. And the more you go, uh, the, the more you learn and the longer you do it, the better you become at it because there's a lot of mistakes you make a lot of mistakes as a scout, but those actually help you in the end because you become a better scout. But it's, it's like a 10 year process just to get your eyes wrapped around the scouting. Where, what is your philosophy on drafting goalies in the first round? (laughs) Well, they turn out to be Vasilevsky. I'm all for it. Um, Listen, you know, in, in our culture in St. Louis in the scouting room, I thought we did a great job, you know, from Ben Bishop to, to Bennington to Husso to Hoffers in there to I'm missing somebody in that process. But, you know, and, and it, it's really about having, you know, good people that understand goaltending and you can find them anywhere. You know, you just have to have good people and they've got to see the good. If, if you're when you if you go to a game and watch a goaltender, 
you, you can't say, okay, there's, you know, there's only half left of the glass of water. You got to say, you know, you know, it's 50%. You got to look at that positive side. It's the only way you can draft goaltenders and they're hard, they're tricky, but this is one piece of advice about giving a goaltender in their amateur year. They've got to have one game you go to that they win the game. They put the entire team on their back. I saw that from Bennington and Knight and Kitchener in February in his draft year. It stopped 45. He won them the game. Larry Plow and I walked out and said, ooh, he's going to go. He's going to go high. You got to have one game where you, he, he puts a team on his back. And that's what we like about Veg Malco. He, he had 10 of those for us this year. Bill, great stuff, man. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, Frank and I look forward to, to getting some free vitamin uh, D from you when we come down to, uh, to town next time. So thanks very I would much love, for joining us. I would love to have you guys in the desert. You guys let me know when you guys are coming. We'll set you up. All right. Bill Armstrong. Say this, Frank, sharp dressed guy. Uh, no question about it. Uh, he definitely seems to, to have a plan in, in what he's going to do in Arizona. And he didn't, uh, he, he didn't really waver from it. It sounds like this is one where, you know what? We got a lot of picks the next three years. We're going to keep a lot of those picks. We're just going to keep stockpiling. Um, I, I don't expect the, the Coyotes to be overly competitive for a few more years. And it seems like the organization, we're going to be patient. And that's what their plan is. He seemed to give a hint on the timeline. He says five years. Uh, you have been pretty steadfast in your belief that you think it takes eight. Well, they're already into it, right? So. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think that it's ever really the manager that wavers from the process. I think that where rebuilds go awry is the owner yeah. gets it, gets impatient and says, totally I'm agree. tired of losing. We need to fix this. You need to inject some, you know, vets, some, you know, free agent money, whatever it is, you need to make some trades in order to turn this around quicker because you just can't, they don't like withstanding the losses year after year, writing checks to cover you know, a disinterested fan base that doesn't want to show up and for good reason. So um, I have no question in my mind that Bill Armstrong is steadfast in his belief uh, of what it takes. It seems like he's pretty, you know, detailed and dedicated to that process. But I am curious to see what happens when and if, big if, the Arizona Coyotes get a new arena and they need to fill it. And they're saying, well, you know, we're kind of still like two or three years away. That's when, yeah, well, that's when the rubber is going to meet the road. Yeah. They're saving graces for the next two years, Frank. Um, it'll be hard to have an empty barn when you only have 5,000 seats. Like that, that might be the perfect, perfect time to be a, to be in, in this much of a rebuild. Cause even if you only get 5,000 fans, it's going to be a sellout. It's going to feel like a great atmosphere in every night because a smaller rank is going to have lower ceilings. It's going to be really loud. Um, I think guaranteed it's three years. They're locked in three years at Arizona state. They released uh, some documents from Arizona state uh, in the last week. So three full years at at least at Arizona state. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's crazy, man. I know you you used to be able to get a suite there for nothing. Uh, You you could get a suite for like 2000 bucks and that included all the food and beverage. This is not like, I know lots of Canadians went down there. Like for when uh, I know a lot of people from Edmonton and Calgary, when their teams would play in there, Frank, they would fly down as a group. They go golf and they get a suite. They just couldn't believe how cheap it was like a hundred bucks a guy. By the way, bucks a guy. pretty awesome sales pitch from, from Bill Armstrong as well on like <laughs> oh, yeah. to, to live in Scottsdale. I was kind of like, damn, uh, let's, let's, let's start looking into some Scottsdale real estate. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, as you mentioned, uh, we're we're doing our, our uh, this intro and, and extra uh, late in the morning. We did we did Bill uh, early yesterday uh, afternoon, and um, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm kind of curious to see what they do with their veterans because you can't just go with young guys. You go scorched earth, you get crushed. You know, you, you want to try to at least be competitive. And you know, Jacob Chicken, Frank, you asked him about it. Like, you know, Jacob Chicken's a guy that I, I wonder how much longer. Like, you, you know, guys like you know Louis Erickson and the veterans. You can allow a lot of veterans that'll come there for a year or two late in their career because they want to keep playing. And you know what? They'll be good guys. They understand the situation. But you're a Jacob Chicken. You're kind of a young guy just entering the prime of your career. I, I don't know how, how many years you want to just get your teeth kicked in. Uh, I'm gonna say no more. He's you think he's getting it, dealt this summer? He's made it very clear to the Coyotes that he does not want to come back. They're going to try and do everything they can to appease him. And my guess is that some team steps up and finally gives them the package that they're looking for now that they're in the offseason and more teams can be in the mix. Yeah, well, that makes sense. They're looking for picks and, uh, and young prospects, Frank. Uh, well, Frank, uh, when we talk on Monday, we, we will know who is into the second round. Uh, we know Colorado's in. We know that the uh, St. Louis Blues are in and they're going to face each other. So the uh, the two teams that are in, we, they're playing each other uh, after that. Who knows? It's going to be a great weekend of uh, NHL. And I'm telling you, I would love six game sevens. That would be absolutely phenomenal. So uh, selfishly, I'm hoping it happens. Uh, Frank, get some sleep and uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Cervalli and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash.